Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning investigative reporter Rachel DeSell of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Over her career, she's focused on the impact of violence against women and children, environmental topics, corruption, and other social injustices. Rachel also is an adjunct professor at her alma mater, Kent State University. Today she talks with us about covering trauma and trauma victims from a reporter's perspective and how to handle burnout from constantly writing about tragedy. Rachel, you've uh, spent a career covering trauma in various forms. I know that that takes some special talent as a reporter to be able to talk to a trauma victim and honor what they've gone through, but at the same time, do your job. How have you been able to develop those special skills? Well, I think about that a lot now that I do some teaching because when I was in journalism school, you know, we focused so much on nuts and bolts of reporting. And I don't remember ever sitting down in a class and talking about how to interview uh, um, someone who was a victim of trauma. And so luckily through the years with experiences and, and really reaching out to experts in the trauma field and not the journalism field, I was able to learn a little bit more about how to do the work in a way that enabled me to do the story I needed to do, but also made things manageable for the people that I was interviewing. Um, you know, reporters tend to go in with questions that they want answered. And trauma victims don't always have kind of a clean, linear narrative. So learning how to kind of adapt interviewing to where they're at was very helpful. And I almost always sit down with someone um, who's been through a trauma for the first time and let them just have an open open narrative, no questions, no redirections, and a lot of time. I've sat down with folks um, to talk about maybe a sexual assault or an experience with a criminal justice system, and an interview that could have taken 45 minutes takes three hours because they start at the very beginning, you know, in their lives where, where they think, you know, their trauma where it, starts. Where it all started. Yeah. yeah. And so I think in doing that, it's really helpful because you can understand where they're at, but then you can also kind of construct what you need to for your story. But I've also noticed that it, it does help some trauma victims, you know, 
construct their own narrative, kind of reconstruct and put things together for themselves, which is very helpful in the telling of a story. I think sometimes we we get the impression that reporters are are totally callous, and sometimes we are, uh, but we get the impression of people knocking on the door of somebody who just lost a loved one and sticking a microphone in their face and say, how do you feel? You're not really working on how they feel as the primary thrust of what you're going for. You're going for what they endured, and then you get to how they feel, right? It's It seems different. I mean, it really depends on the story. So when I started out, like a lot of reporters, I was a crime reporter, and I was, you know, dispatched from an office based <laughs> Knocking on, on that door, right? Yeah, you know, based on police scanner traffic. And I really thought a lot about that when I would knock on someone's door and thinking that this was the worst moment of their life. And I had information that I had to get and a lot of pressure to get it, but also trying to think about how to not, not to make that experience terrible for them. Um, and one of the things that I think I started doing at that point without thinking about it that I've continued to do was really to explain our work and our process to people. So I would say to someone, um, you know, I have to write the story for the newspaper and I'd like to get some information from you. And here's what happens if you give me the information. And here's what it'll look like if you don't give me the information. So if you want to tell me about your loved one, like the parts that you want to share, we can include that. If not, that information might come from police reports or neighbors. And so it's your choice if you want to share it or not. And people respond to that more, a more lot likely than not? I think a lot of times, yeah, people would respond um, more to knowing that this is an option. Um, you know, I also witnessed a lot of really bad <laughs> interactions in reporting where people felt on the spot. And, and I just didn't think in the end that made for better journalism. It made for, you know, maybe that story on the first day, but the second or third day, you weren't going to be able to go back and talk to someone because they were then not feeling good about that interaction. So I think it's also kind of the difference between playing the short game and the long game. Um, and it takes a little longer to build a rapport with someone, but you'll never do the the kind of more in-depth story where people understand someone's experience if you're kind of, you know, doing the knock and run. Yeah. <laughs> um. when, when you let somebody talk for three hours to, to tell you their story in, in an interview that might take a half hour to 45 minutes, how do you then respond to that? Do you go back immediately with, with questions? Uh, are they put off by you taking notes during that conversation? How do, what's your next step? It probably depends on the person and, you know, the length of time that I have to work on the story um, just to see how someone's responding. I think I've seen some people that are very exhausted after sharing all of that. And so you don't want to come and ask them questions. Um, I try to, to feel out what the best way is for someone to communicate. I've actually started interviews where someone starts to talk about their experience and they're really having a hard time with it. And maybe I'll say, like, would it be easier for you to write some of this down for me? Like, if we're not sitting here having an interview, like, would you like to write out this so that I can read it and then we can talk? And I've done that, um, especially with younger folks. They will like to write or text or communicate maybe with a little bit of a barrier. Um, and so I'm kind of so like— So it's not so intimate yeah, and or so scary. As a reporter, you, you want to be in a room and obser observing someone. But I think also with trauma, you kind of have to meet someone where they're at at that moment and just build um, you know, a rapport from there. 
Um, I've had folks who have a really hard time getting through something that happened. And then I will say, um, well, you know, if you think about that more later and there's something else you want to share, or you're like having a hard time describing and you think about it, just like send me a message, you know, let me know like in that moment that you're thinking about it. And I've gotten a lot of really good feedback for stories that way um, by not kind of putting someone in a box of like how I can take the information from them. Let, letting them sort of dribble it out if they, if they prefer. Sure. And it, it can make it harder to construct a story <laughs> sure. sometimes because sure. then you are – you know, dealing with the pieces of someone's kind of fractured memories or narratives. But I think in the end, maybe you get more information and like more important information that you need for the story if you do it that way. I know trauma is is something that is raw in many people because it's immediate and you're close to in proximity and time to when you're doing the interview. But you and I also have interviewed people who have suffered trauma years ago and it's still it's been my experience it still seems raw to them you know even though we're sitting there and thinking well this happened 20 years ago um, to that person it's like it happened yesterday I think especially if something is unresolved and and kind of still is a burden on someone um, in their mind or in their kind of soul that yeah that will feel very raw I think about um I was interviewing a woman the other day, and the immediate story I was interviewing her about was the fact that she and her six kids were homeless because there was lead poisoning in their house, and the systems in our city didn't respond correctly. And when we sat down to talk, she kept going back to the fact that that her mother had abandoned her when she was a child, and then when she was 11, her father was killed. And those things would seemingly have nothing to do with the story that I was writing about, but to her, these things were connected. These things that had happened to her led her to, to dark places in her life to maybe not make the best choices and then really try and then still have the system not be helpful to her. They were kind of these connected experiences. Sort of threads in, in yeah. her life. They were threads and they weren't different. They were not disconnected to her. They all were were a way of her describing how difficult it was for her to exist and do the right thing with all these these things that were in her past, even when she really wanted to and really tried. You have covered so much in, in your career from sexual violence to just traumas involved with the criminal justice system to I know that you, you've done work on lead poisoning and basically how the system systems, I should say, are not working for for people. How do you, of all the millions of things out there that are wrong, how do you focus? What do you, how do you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really dig deep on this? Because you dig deep on the stories you cover. How do you make that decision? Um, I don't know that it's a conscious decision. I think I'm just kind of like an innately persistent person. <laughs> um, and so once I start down one you path. You were that kid who was a pest, right? <laughs> yeah, once it's once I stop down, like once I, sorry, um, once I start down one path, it's hard for me to get off of it until I see that maybe something's happening. So, you know, for instance, with I think sexual assault, it started out just looking into cases and maybe why they weren't always being investigated properly. Um, and, you know, as reporters, we just kept going and going and moving from, you know, 
crimes that were committed to the greater injustices in the system and how hard those are to fix because they're, they've been around for a really long time. Um, but, but in doing so, just taking the sexual assault uh, instance, you, you went on to discover all these thousands of rape kits that were never processed. That, that certainly wasn't where you started, was it? No, we started out trying to figure out why, you know, the Cleveland police hadn't investigated reports from women who were raped and then later, you know, a serial killer killed 11 of them. Um, And as as any reporter does, you just kind of follow the various paths. And that path ended up being a bigger one than we thought. And I think we kind of naively, um, myself and and Layla Atassi, a reporter who I was working with, thought that, well, now these kids will be tested and things will be great and cases will be investigated. Um, And when that didn't happen, it was really difficult. And we, you know, we had talked to so many victims and reviewed hundreds of cases and really took that all in and took it to heart. And then to see that the system maybe didn't respond by by really changing as a whole to do better investigations was really frustrating. And there was a therapist who was on a um, who was uh, working in a story I was recently working with, and I thought she put it well when she said, you know, my my clients, they never are the ones who, who burn me out. It's the system that burns me out because she could deal with their individual experiences and help them, but the wider system just didn't seem, you know, movable to change to help them. Um, your, your reporting has made changes in systems, whether it's been policy or legislative or or practice, uh, that's not always the case with reporters. <laughs> Sometimes it's a one-off story after one-off story, and there's, there's no thread. Is that something you seek when you start on something, or is it just you want to tell the story, or do you want to make that change? Well, I think like we like we noted, I'm a pest. Um, <laughs> I just I can't really. Um, all, all my good <laughs> journalistic friends are. Um, it's hard to give up on those larger pictures. So I, I do think that um, I've had this kind of ethical go round with a lot of folks on on the intent of journalism, and sometimes it is um, telling a story. And I've I've had people kind of come at me and say, "Oh, well, you can't be, you know, you have to be down the middle. You know, you can't be pushing for change on something." And I'll say, "Well, if you have the pro rape movement, contact me. I'll make sure to include their side." Um, so I think right. as a society, we've decided that it's it's not okay for people to be physically harmed by other people. It's it's very detrimental. Um, and so I think, yeah, you do push for change. Um, to see that that doesn't happen as often as it does. And then also that, that systems that, that we build and operate and pay for, you know, do the best they can to respond when something bad does happen. And we kind of expect that. And, you know, in this recent um, story that I worked on about a woman whose uh, rape wasn't investigated and she had to do some of the work herself, it turns out that that was the harder thing for her. And the way that she was able to put it finally was that, like, I expected the rapist to be a bad guy. He was a criminal. I knew it. He hurt me. I didn't expect the system that was supposed to help me to be a bad guy and to hurt me. You know, like, that wasn't she my was expectation. She was victimized twice is another way of her putting it, I assume. Yeah. She was victimized by the system as well as the individual rapist. Well, I think they they made things worse and not better. They prolonged her um, – 
they prolonged the feelings that she was having and, and prevented her from being able to start healing because of their lack of response. And there was a lot of reasons for that, you know, money and training and burnout and stuff. But when you're the person on the other side of that, it's it's definitely hard to understand that. Do you spend a lot of time on, let's just say, the sexual assault story? Do you spend a lot of time uh, on the other side of that, talking to police officers, talking to judges, talking to people involved in the system, the system that's not working? Yeah, I mean, we try to as, as much as possible. Um, in some cases, it's very difficult because in Cleveland, for instance, um, if the police officers don't get permission from the department, um, they can get disciplined for talking to me. So I have to do it in very uh, careful ways so that I don't put them at different risk or jeopardy, but I find ways to have discussions and and really try to understand their perspectives. And in doing this most recent story, I remember talking to a former sex crimes detective afterwards, and we were talking about, you know, how they deal with all the stuff that they see and hear, which is, which is very difficult, and they have a big responsibility. Um, and, you know, he was describing that it's not really within the culture to get help, and he was even able to give a really good kind of concrete example that the department has a, um, you know, like a psychologist that you can go see, but the person's office is right outside the training academy, and there's like <laughs> a bench in the hallway, and so you basically, you know, are seen by everybody. You expose and yourself. Even made fun of as someone who needs help, and he talked about someone who kind of made a joke in front of recruits at one point about, oh, if you're sitting on that bench, you got a DUI, or you hit your wife, or you're you're having some problems, you're crazy, you know, like, so there's this whole system within their system that isn't built to say, wow, like you've you've done some really difficult cases. Like, let's make sure you're okay so you can still help people. Um, so seeing, I think, that Instead, side of it. Instead, you're, you're one step away from internal affairs or Yeah, so I think seeing HR, that side of it right? from their perspective is equally important. Um, you can't just kind of be on the outside and say, change this system. You have to understand what is the problem within that system before you can um, talk about the fact that it might need to be changed. And, and not only just say this system needs to be changed, but do some exploration on what might work better. Do you have trouble having judges talk, talk with you? Not really. Judges they, are pretty open because they, they're in charge of everything. We don't have to worry about anybody. <laughs> but But when you sort of probe and prod that, their system isn't working so well. Not really. I've, I've really had good relationships with most judges that I know. Um, I think, too, because, I mean, I covered the courts for like 10 years, and I, right. I, I didn't sit in a courtroom and just take what one side said and take what the other side said and walked away. I would always try to ask more questions and understand more about what's going on with the case because, I mean, courts are just inherently dramatic. I mean, life and death and all kinds of decisions happen in there all the They're time. They're extremes. They're incredibly dramatic or incredibly boring. <laughs> yeah, but even the boring stuff is yeah. really important sometimes. So, so what got you started on reporting justice and, and courts? and cops uh, early in your career? Well, I, I just think like any young reporter, that's the beat you're put on. And most are like smart enough after the first five years to <laughs> flee and go to like education or health. Economy. And I just kind of uh, have always had a, a keen interest in how important the justice system is and, um, and how it works or doesn't work for people. And I mean, I think 10 years ago, there, there wasn't enough conversation on that. And now there's actually a huge recognition um, about the flaws in the system. And, 
um, how it doesn't always work the way it should. And there's also a lot of movement to try different things to make it work better, which I think is great. You covered the system that uh, one of the leading podcasts in the world, Serial, came in to to spend time, and they spent a whole season covering the criminal justice system in Cuyahoga County. And and did, did you see that as a competition, as an assistance, as opening the, the, the view to more people? How did you view that? Well, I thought it was fabulous. I was so glad that, that they came, and I was able to, like— help fact check a couple things for them. It's it's incredibly difficult to get public information and interviews in the city of Cleveland, which they quickly realized they couldn't, I, they couldn't even understand how we were able to do our job sometimes <laughs> with the lack of right. information. Um, but I really thought that they brought in a, an important perspective. You know, they didn't come in having to cover the people and the daily cases that were important. They came in and were able to sit back and listen to the most ordinary cases and then just dive much deeper into what was happening behind those. And I think it was enlightening for people. I also think a lot of folks listened to it and thought, well, this is going to spark conversations that are going to change things. And exactly. I was like, yeah, sure. It will. <laughs> like, I've been around that block before. It takes a lot more than that. So I think they really served a purpose of, of, of sparking conversation and, and really airing out perspectives that don't always make it into daily news stories as staffs have kind of diminished and, and people are running around taking photos and videos and covering seven things a day. Um, just having the time to sit with people and follow cases for a longer period of time is kind of a gift. It was, it was a strange mix of covering individual stories but also covering a system and covering the system through those individual stories. Mm -hmm. it, 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 I thought it was incredibly well done. Yeah, it was very powerful. And I think that, that Sarah and Emmanuel did a really good job of, of thoughtfully putting stuff together. I, I think that folks from the outside can come in and feel like, well, I don't owe anything to anybody, <laughs> so I don't have to be right. as careful or thoughtful. But they are the opposite of that. They really put a lot of, of deep thought into what what to include and what not to include and which perspectives were important to highlight. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You mentioned burnout earlier. Um, I know as a, as a former judge, sometimes in court I would sit and think, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, I've been here, done this. This is – nothing's getting better. Uh, it, it, you just have a burnout factor. And I assume the same thing happens to you when, when you see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, uh, trauma after trauma after trauma. Uh, how, do, how do you deal with that individually? You know, I, I feel like I can recite all the techniques for dealing with it, but I, I would kind of be dishonest to say right. that I do that well. Um, sometimes I do. I know that um, after certain stories, um, sometimes I just need to back off for a little bit. And um, I kind of was, <laughs> you know, I'm giving this this lecture tonight, and I was trying to figure out how to explain that. And I, I kind of ended up thinking about it that, I you know, I covered sexual assault, you know, very closely for 10 years, and I really needed a break. So I decided to cover lead poisoning because somehow that, that structural racism and injustice seemed like less difficult <laughs> than <laughs> sexual assault. And so I guess I, I thought about that and I thought, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. But that in my mind, it made a lot of sense. It was just a little bit more of a distance because I could look at it through policies and health, which seemed a little bit safer. As opposed to looking into that face of, Is expo- of yeah. someone that, that has experienced trauma beyond belief. Correct. And and folks that have dealt with lead poisoning have, have trauma as well. But it seemed like there was a little bit more of a chance that there would um, be some meaningful um, action that would be possible to make things better. Um, and I think that, that that did happen. That was correct. I mean, from the time we started covering lead poisoning in Cleveland very seriously till now, there's been um, a whole new set of laws passed, and there's a lot of more energy around changing it. And I do kind of wonder to myself why that didn't happen around sexual assault so much. You know, why are the two very different? I, ha- I don't have a good answer for it yet. Um, but that was kind of like a little bit of a break for me. And then I was able to kind of um, get some reserve energy to do our latest story that we did, which which then took a lot of <laughs> It took a lot, I think, out of myself and Andrea Samakis, the other reporter that worked on it. We were pretty, we were in pretty bad shape by the end of it. Uh, it's not only what observing all of that and digging deep into all of that does to you uh, at the moment, but I always found that I would have to deal with a horrific situation and I'd put it on a shelf and say, okay, nothing can be worse than this. I've done the worst. And then surprise upon surprise, the next thing was even worse than that. It was like this downward spiral of things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Do you ever experience that? I try not to compare experiences because I'm, you know, always dealing with individuals and their stories. And so I think if I start to compare them, um, then I wouldn't be doing the right thing by one person's story. Um, I think for as a reporter, and it's probably different than, you know, being a judge, the harder part for me is that 
you don't just sit and listen to someone's story and take it in and write things down, but but then you have to figure out, especially if you're doing a narrative story, how to really process it and write it so that other people understand it. So you're taking this different step of taking the information in. And Not just how you understand it. You don't just do an interview, but then, you know, maybe one section that describes like a really traumatic event, you might write it and rewrite it. 50 times and each time you're going over those details and remembering them and trying to understand what they mean and how to share that with someone else and balance how much to say and how much not to say. So I feel like it even gets ingrained maybe more deeply than just hearing it and putting it on a shelf because like you don't get to put it on a shelf you're going over and over it for months at a time. Yeah. How do you deal with uh, photographs or or, uh, illustrations or does that come to mind as you're putting a story together, how you're going to tell this visually without being invasive uh, or putting people at risk? I mean, it's a part of what we do now. I mean, when I started, none of that was my problem. I just like <laughs> wrote the words and turned them in at six and they appeared in the paper the next day. And now the visuals are our responsibility. The layout online is our responsibility. Um, our, our latest series that that we did case closed. I, I laid out the entire um, six days online. All um, the headlines are Yeah, <laughs> well, luckily people helped me, like, you know, copy edit those and stuff. But, um, and I had a, um, a colleague who, you know, who worked on it with me, but the technical aspect of it, I did. Um, and so there's two things. One is, like, what do people need to see that will help them understand this and draw it in? And the other was having conversations with, with Sandy, who was the survivor, about you know, we're going to, we would like to include this. How is that going to feel to you? You know, if we have this really large picture of the basement that you were raped in, even though it's a police photo and it's from a couple years ago, like what's that going to, what's that going to be like? And, you know, we felt strongly people need to see this to help them understand what it was like. And, but you're also going to see it. And so we had a conversation and she was like, well, yeah, people need to see it. I mean, I don't want to keep seeing it, but and so I gave her kind of like a warning, like this is when this is going to be there and this is what it's going to look like. So you can choose whether you want to look at it again or not. Um, so that was that's a really difficult part of it, too, because you're not only trying to prepare the story for the audience, but you're also working with someone whose private life and information this is. And for me, I have found it extremely helpful to really take the time to explain reporting process and choices to victims because if you don't tell them anything, they're, they're inevitably more worried than they would be if they knew what choices were being made and Because why. they wouldn't know what you would do with any of this, right? Yeah. Well, How you would process it. Very really. scary not yeah. to have control over what will happen with information about one of the worst experiences of your and life. And once you let that story out of your mouth, uh, then you can't bring it back. Yeah. And so, like, we would say, okay, well— we have to include this information from the perpetrator's video with, you know, video interview with police, and here's why we have to include it. And you might not like what that information is, but this is why it needs to be part of the story. Like, let's talk about that. Um, and we would have a good conversation about it. And I think in the end, she felt far more confident in the story um, than if she had just given us all the information and we never talked again until it was published, you know, um, because she understood and could even explain the process to other people, which which I think helped her um, tell her story better as well. What happens after the story's been told? Do, do the people still reach out to you? Do they still contact you? Do they sort of crawl back and say, okay, I'm done? Uh, 
it probably depends on the person. You know, I have one um, woman that I wrote about when she was 18 years old. She had been sexually assaulted and shot by her ex-boyfriend, and we still talk to this day. And that was 2007. Um, I know, you know, she lives in Germany. I know her children. When she comes home, they've met my children. Um, you know, like we're we're very close. We were both very young when I wrote the story. She was 18. I was in my 20s. Um, you know, and it taught me a lot, and it helped her a lot. Um, and then I have other folks that I've written about that that probably would rather be done with that process, and you know, they're okay with it, but they don't want to keep talking. Um, I'll have people that surface a year or two later and just check in. Hey, I was thinking about this. This came up. How are you doing? I'm doing better in my life now, or I'm really struggling in my life now. So it's really a person-by-person thing, I, I would say. I, I noticed that you have been involved with various organizations. You've, you're a DART fellow. You've you, uh, uh, worked for um, or became an Annenberg Health Fellow. Um, how did those experience help you with burnout, or how do they redirect you, or do they give you more energy? Is it like a boost that you need every once in a while? I think it's, I think it's about always learning more about what you do and your craft and from other people. And so I think being around other people that really want to do a good job and, and learn the best ways to report on things and the most important information and techniques is, is a good thing. Um, there can be a little bit of the opposite where you go away and you're with a bunch of people and you have energy and you learn and then you come back to your office and you realize, oh, it's going to be really hard to do those things with the resources <laughs> we have. So it, right. can, it can be a little bit of a, a burden in a way to want to do great things in an industry where, where resources just go away. I mean, I, when I started at the Plain Dealer, we had 300 or more reporters, and now we have like fewer than 40. So imagining that you can do really big things without resources um, is hard. You, that could burn you out almost more than doing the story itself, is trying to like pull that, that you know, brick up a hill, you know, <laughs> by yourself or even with a couple dedicated colleagues. Um, there's this idea that it's very easy to do this work and it just magically appears on the internet, but to do it really thoughtfully, like the way that we should, it, it takes a lot of energy, not just emotional energy, but just hours of the day that, that don't always exist when you're multitasking and covering a lot of things. And, and I know that you're, uh, you must feel that when staffs are sh- uh, shrinking and, and go continuing to go down, you must be looking at other options, at n- not necessarily leaving the plane dealer. I'm not going <laughs> to get you in trouble with that. But but you've got to be looking at, are there other ways to tell stories? Yeah, or, or, Have you reached that point yet? No, I don't know. I still like this way that I have. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm a bit, I'm like on the, you know, I'm on the deck of the Titanic and I, <laughs> I, had, I could make a choice to leap off. And try to get into like a lifeboat or I could stay on and just really enjoy the music as it (laughs) plays. And that's kind of the choice that I made. Like I'm just going to keep doing this as long as I can. And yes, we're always exploring different ways. You know, our our newspaper is kind of joining some interesting collaboratives around solutions. Um, 
I'm, I'm hopefully, if we get this grant that we're trying to get, starting a project um, next year where I'm working with small community-based news organizations and some groups to, to tackle a project that's of interest in an underserved community. And I think that will, that will take us to doing some very different types of journalism with some radio components and some storytelling that's in a different way. So I, I'm a kind of like, I'm willing to try anything, but I do think that we can't give up on the, on the public paying for good journalism you know we we don't want to become organizations that live from grant to grant and kind of um by the whims of what's popular we have to really forge trust with this with communities that we haven't done well with so that they will want to support this work in the future and think that it's important with the multiplicity of ways of telling stories nowadays and almost an expectation that stories are told in in multiple ways. Do you feel that as a pressure? Yes and no. I mean, I think the more time you have to think about the right way to tell a certain story, the better. Um, If you're trying to layer on five ways to tell the same story just because you think you should, that's probably not the best idea. I mean, some stories, I think, will always be better on radio than they would ever be in the written word, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a beauty to stitching together a narrative with words that people can sit and hold in their hands and read from beginning to end that couldn't be served in a video, you right. know? I, I just, I've talked to so many reporters that feel uh, maybe pressure is not the right word, but they, they think, you know, this story is just perfect for this particular medium, <laughs> and I don't want to dilute it by doing all these other things. And then the counter argument is, but you could reach so many more people. You could reach so many more audiences because some people just don't read anymore. Some people only listen or some people only watch. And that seems to be a conflict with many people. Yeah, I suppose it's, you know, depends on the intent too. I, I think that we always keep learning when, when we first started putting our stories on the internet. Everybody was just obsessed with how many people clicked on them and were not thinking about what they got out of them when they did. You know, what, did these stories touch them? Did they make them think? You know, um, and now people talk more about time spent with a story and what meaning that is. So, you know, for instance, when we did our most recent series, I probably would have rather put it all, all up at once, but for reasons beyond my control, we put it up <laughs> over six days. But, um, we were able to measure how long someone spent reading each of those chapters, and they were varying lengths. And often people spent, you know, 12 to 14 minutes reading each chapter, which is pretty incredible for an internet reading um, of a news story right. on a website. And so, in my mind, that tells me a little bit more than the number of people that clicked on it, you know. That it really resonated with people who spent time with it. That they spent time with it, that they they stayed with it till the end. Um, And the other thing that I thought was really important was that a really large percentage of people who started came back and read the other the other days. So they were like, there's something here I want to know more about. So return clicks, not yeah, just so, the initial Yeah, and one. I w- don't want to call them clicks. But I know. Return <laughs> reads Readers. of the story. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. The word clicks like gives me like a nervous tick or something. But <laughs> I, I totally <laughs> even if understand. I'm not measured that way, it still you know makes me – I think it minimizes – what we do. I think people, that's how people ended up focusing on catchy headlines, um, which really uh, 
makes me angry, I guess. Um, I learned uh, not too long ago that the Washington Post now has this system that they put out three headlines for every story, and then they can almost instantly decide which headline is preferred, and they jettison the other the other two by people's reactions to it. I mean, it's getting down to that quick, real-time kind of editing. Yeah, and that, I mean, I can see why they would want to do that. Um, but also then you're only catching the first wave of people. And I think people read different things at different times for different reasons. And I don't think the audience is one big monolith of an audience. So you might be losing some people who might be someone that would see the story later and that headline wouldn't work for them. But So last question, are you encouraged about the future of journalism and what you do? Are you discouraged? Uh, are you looking at how you can adapt to a new landscape or are you just plugging ahead? I think it's hard not to be discouraged sometimes, but also I work often with a lot of young folks who are really starting to understand how important information is and and maybe not even just traditional journalism that we the way that we think of it with the big J, but just that information isn't being shared the way it should in our communities, but that it's really important, you know, in order for things to get changed and communities to be better, the information has to be shared. And so I, I do think that um, that methods will come up that will be different than the ones that we imagine now for that to happen. Um, but it's also, it's hard not to see the um, conglomeration happening and the companies getting gobbled up and the jobs being lost and the pressure for and fewer local people. news disappearing and yeah. across the country. Yeah, it, it's hard not to get kind of a stomach ache over that sometimes. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we still have to keep doing it every day because the news doesn't stop so we can figure things out. Rachel, good luck with your future projects and thank you for talking Thanks for, with us. Thanks for um, talking to me today. Today, our guest has been Rachel DeSell, an award-winning investigative reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. She's been talking about covering trauma victims and tragedies. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One, Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.